On this episode of The Failsafe, I talk with Jessica Hopper and Alyssa Nutting at a live recording of Prairie Lights during the 2016 Witching Hour Festival. Jessica Hopper is a music and culture critic based in Chicago. Her book, The Girl's Guide to Rocking, was named one of 2009's notable books for young readers by the American Library Association, and her latest book, The First Collection of Criticism by a Living Female Rock Critic, was released in 2015 to critical acclaim. Hopper currently is a senior creative producer at Spotify Originals. Alyssa Nutting is an assistant professor of English at Grinnell College. She is the author of the story collection Unclean Jobs for Women and Girls, as well as the novels Tampa and, most recently, Made for Love. The Failsafe is produced by Draft, the Journal of Process, and the Iowa Writers' House. Draft publishes first and final drafts of stories, essays, and poems, along with author interviews about the creative process. Find them online at draftjournal.com. The Iowa Writers' House is a community literary organization based in Iowa City that's dedicated to creating a space for education, support, and resources for writers. Find them online at iowawritershouse.org. Coming up... How does stalking figure into the creative process? And how do writers stay sane or go insane after they become parents? We reveal these and other deep mysteries of the universe next. Why, hello there. Are you ready for some failure? We're going to talk about failure. Um, Jessica Hopper and Alyssa Nutting. Uh, this is just a really badass interview that I can't believe we have held out on all of you for so long. This was recorded last year ah, at Witching Hour Festival in Iowa City, and Witching Hour is coming up again October 20th and 21st this year. So, yeah, we, we got to get on the ball, people. Anyway, Witching Hour is a festival that explores the unknown. People discuss creative process and present new work. And by people, I mean really dope-ass artists, writers, thinkers from Iowa and around the country. So you might want to go look, witchinghourfestival.com. I would encourage you to. It brings in cool people like Jessica Hopper and Alyssa Nutting. Um, So yeah, great lineup this year, great lineup last year. Jessica and Alyssa were so fun to talk to and just had a lot of realness, uh, which of course we appreciate here at the Failsafe. So hope you enjoy. Without further ado, Jessica, Alyssa, failure. So, as I said, I was doing some research for this podcast, which also known as Facebook Stalking, and I noticed that on um, Jessica's Facebook page, her cover photo was um, a picture of some rules that the avant-garde composer John Cage had. It was called Rules for Students and Teachers, and it was very familiar to me because it's something that I've had kind of pinned up next to my writing desk for many years. Um, And they're a list of rules that have sort of guided my creative process. They're something that have really rung true for me. And I just wanted to read a few of them that are particularly pertinent to our talk today. So rule one on your handout, find a place you trust and then try trusting it for a while. Rule four, consider everything an experiment. Um, I took this rule so much to heart that I started calling my writing workshops laboratories and telling my students that if they didn't fail big, they weren't going to get an A. So just to bring in something that was completely insane and a huge risk and just fail big in my class because I love it when my students do that. Um, Rule six, nothing is a mistake. There's no win and no fail. There's only make. I know, it's great, isn't it? Rule nine, we're breaking all of the rules, even our own rules. So um, for Jessica and also for Alyssa, can you talk a bit about why you're drawn to these rules and how you've seen them figuring into your creative process? So I came to these rules via uh, Sister Corita, and I don't know if people know her, but she was a... um, 
famous art-making nun. I, I found these rules sort of around the time that I was midway through my first book. And, you know, I found them useful for many reasons. But thinking about something as consider everything experiment. Um, that was really useful to me, particularly when I was working on my first book. And I was uh, writing for tween slash teenage girls. And um, it was a little hard sometimes to not constantly self-edit, putting into the book uh, things that I was like, oh, are these too big of ideas? Are these too old? Are these too young? And just kind of saying, let's just just put it in. Just put it in, and you're going to edit it on the back end. And it's not... It, it, I just found it wasn't terribly useful to get caught up in um, my own self-doubt. And um, I actually you know, used a uh, whole, um, I, I used like a little Ikea frame and framed a little, um, like, I don't know, index card that I wrote in glitter pen on it, self-doubt is poisonous. And I put it right at eye level above my desk on my wall when I was uh, trying to finish that book, which was a fairly arduous process. Um, but, you know, I really think there's so many things here. It's like nothing is a mistake. You know, I really try to instill that in um, when I'm editing other people because I think sometimes, um, you know, our writing is so much of ourselves that when someone else edits you, you can be like, oh, this should have been perfect. And I tell them no one learns anything from being perfect ever. It's funny you mentioned Facebook stalking, which is really fun to fail at, um, because I, I think like the point is like they're not supposed to know you're looking, but I always end up like I'll see something I genuinely like when I'm Facebook stalking, and then I'll like it, but then they know I guess that I'm looking. But I actually think that stalking is a really really big part of kind of um, being being an emerging artist, you know, and and sort of you know that 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 really healthy cycle of fair failure, you know? I mean, I think like you should stalk really big, you know, um, as an artist, um, just all of the other artists you, you know, love and admire, like, like aim really high um, in terms of your stalking. I, th I think that that's a huge, it's always been one of my like huge motivating forces is kind of, yeah, like the, the people I admire and, and the people I, I stalk. Um, do you also, Alyssa, have ways that you manage your self-doubt because that's something that really hits home for me too I I tell myself no one ever has to read this like if I think it's too it's not going to work or I don't want my parents to read it or people are going to judge me based on what I write I say no one ever has to read this like it's just going to stay on my computer and actually some of my most successful pieces have been those pieces where I'm like, no one ever has to read this. Mm -hmm. I write it down and then it goes out to like 10,000 people and I'm like, shit, you know? Like I didn't want anyone to read this, but it turned out great because I gave myself that room to really write anything and try anything. Do you have ways that you kind of manage your self-doubt too? Or? Well, I mean, when I was writing Tampa, like every single day, I'm like, this will never get published and no one will ever read this. So I can just be as, you know, like disgusting as I want, right? Um, you know, and then there is like a small reckoning when um, when when it it gets published, and that's not the case, um, and and people see it. But but I feel I feel like that's really really important. I don't know to me, like in the act of writing, is like divorcing divorcing yourself from the reception, right? Because that's kind of the hardest part in terms of just like critical voices that come in, you know, and, and sort of like you're writing something and you're making decisions about what you're writing. And like, I mean, I found myself kind of especially like with um, with the novel that I have coming out this summer, I would be deleting things based on like anticipated lines and reviews, you know? And I'm like, that's actually probably not not a great way, right? To, uh, to be in the art and to make the art, you know? So I mean, I, I, I like that. Um, I like that a lot. Um, I also like crying. Um, I, I live, I live with another writer and, um, I mean, it, it's great the way that, that sort of we, we incorporate crying in this like really cal, like it's like a calisthenic 
exercise, you know, just like in our home and our life and our day um, and our schedule and our routine, um, you know, and it can be this like tandem, you know, really sort of um, like physical team building exercise, right? Like crying. Um, because I mean, I, I think too, like, like just these like small, like catharsis, you know, can, can sort of get, get me over a hump, you know, of, of doubt. Um, um, well, I wanted to pick up on something you said about the reception of your work. I'm wondering um, if you've ever put something out there that you really loved that maybe wasn't received as well as you anticipated, or the other way, something that you were really not sure about that other people thought was fantastic. Could you talk a little bit about um, sort of something that surprised you about the reception of your work, whether it be an article or a book? I gave up uh, pretty early trying to consider any sort of reaction uh, because most of my work is criticism, so um, I kind of don't care what other people think. Um, I mean, I just, I, I don't really take it into consideration. Um, but I, you know, for me, one of the things that I knew from the get-go because my uh, music and culture criticism is is very much uh, framed by my feminism. I didn't really anticipate being understood. I mean, <laughs> I, I, we live in an American patriarchy. Um, so I and and also just reading, you know, so much uh, other music criticism and music writing. I understood, um, you know, how much I was outside of that. How much I was often challenging that, and so. Um, if, if my work was accepted, then I was probably doing it wrong. And I understood that. Um, but also, you know, I, I think, uh, one of the things that has helped, um, helped me in terms of not really sweating what anyone thinks of it is that, um, you know, like I think mm, sort of early into my career as a freelancer, this is like maybe 12 years ago. Um, you know, there was some like huge blowback on some piece that I wrote or something on my blog and, and I really kind of like, it got to me and I was sort of like marinating in th the idea that the whole world didn't think I was so cute and clever. And, um, I let it get to me for a little bit and I saw how it was like kind of curtailing my writing. And then I just was like, I'm going to give this up. Like, who fucking cares what anyone <laughs> thinks? The only people that I'm really writing for, it's, it's, this work is between me and my editor. And so I don't, I don't, I mean, I consider my audience in terms of, you know, comprehension. Am I, am I writing something that would, you know, perhaps speak to them? I, I give it like the most base consideration. But, you know, once I'm through edits with my editor, it's just not, it's just out there. And I, I don't, read comments, I don't, um, you know, and, and maybe some of that freedom is because I come from the analog era of writing. Um, I started writing and having my work published on a, you know, very regular basis when I was 15, 16 years old, which is, you know, I'm talking about the early 90s. So, um, you know, back when people, if they hated something that I wrote, would, you know, write me a letter and use both sides of the paper. And so if someone wants to write, you know, you dumb bitch underneath my piece, I'm like, you're lazy. So why would I even consider this? Great. Alyssa, what about you? What about um, reception and consideration of audiences? How does that figure into... No, I mean, I, I really have to, um, I really have to kind of divorce myself. I mean, I've, um, the, the internet is just, is just so interesting right I mean in terms of like the amount of feedback you know you can get and how instantaneous it is and how anonymous it can be right and sort of like the the types of things that I think that that often frees people up right into feeling like they can say you know um so I mean I just really can't read it I mean like when I, I have this sort of thing now where like if I see myself like on a monitor you know or like on a cell phone if like a, a web page you know is is brought up with like something 
pertaining to me on it. I mean, it, it's like in a movie when they're like sawing someone's leg off, you know, and I just kind of like scream and block it. Um, because for a while I was really obsessive, addictive the other way, you know, but I mean, I, I, I've been impressed at how like taking the Google alert, you know, that I had on my name off, you know, and, and I mean, like, that's something I really, really had to do because it was just too easy to get caught up in the whirlwind. And I think so often it's sort of like this, this catch 22, because what a lot of times, um, like, I'm not saying this is like true for me, right. But a lot of times what sort of drives people to make art is this feeling of being unloved and not belonging, right. Hypothetically, um, you know, and then, you, and then you oftentimes produce art that is inherently, right, like challenging, unlovable, grotesque, um, needling, right? Um, and, and you find yourself really trapped, right? Because, I mean, you're, you're drawn to sort of this act because it's, it's always been this way to, to feel like less of an outsider, um, but then you're producing art that's that's making you feel ostracized, right? Or that like that's the public reception of it, um, and it, it, you know it's kind of like this this huge bind. So I mean, I've I've really had to sort of like turn that um, channel for myself, like a, of public reception off. You know, where where it's more. This is part of how I help myself live in the world, <laughs> right? Like, like the act of writing and the act of making this. Like, this is something I'm doing. Like the way that I would take insulin every day if I were diabetic. So when you were kind of deep in that obsession of, you know, reading what everyone thought, did you find it sort of silencing your own writing or were you just writing through that and working on new projects and kind of plowing forward despite, you know, that sort of feedback you were getting? Um, no, I was in an absolutely manic depression. <laughs> um, and I remember being out to uh, dinner with colleagues and excusing myself to go to the restroom. I did not have to pee even a little bit. I just wanted to look right at this like certain article on my phone, right, that I'd written in like response to like some other fire I was trying to put out, you know, and I was looking up those comments and I was like dropping my phone on like the floor of the bathroom and picking it up and like not washing my hands and it was so gross. Um, but I mean, like, I mean, it was, it was over overtaking me you know it was really overtaking me because I wasn't looking at it as this is a thing I wrote you know and published that's now in the world and people are having their experience with it it was like am I allowed to live in the world right like am I legitimate right and whether or not people like my book is the test of whether or not I as a person existing am legitimate um so that was something that I, I mean, I'm still navigating that, right? It's really hard for me, you know, to sort of divorce my writing from my personal self-worth. Um, so when I started writing, I, I went to get my MFA and I sort of pitched myself into the MFA program as being someone who was going to write about being Mennonite because I had grown up Mennonite and kind of moved away from it. Um, I had no idea how to do that. Uh, my first semester, first workshop, first story I turned in was um, written in the first person from the perspective of a nine-year-old Mennonite boy going, which is already like, sounds horrible. Who wants to read that story? Um, going to this family reunion where there are Mennonite kids and Amish kids and having this interaction with these Amish kids. I think one of them maybe died sort of uh, secretly in the story, but then it has this sort of uplifting ending. <laughs> okay, so, so one of the comments I remember from this workshop was, wow, you took a lot of risks which we all know is code for. You made a lot of really bad decisions in framing the story. Um, and then another woman very seriously asked, are you trying to write faith literature? And I was like, oh, I failed so hard at this. So, but it was also a really important story for me to write as I started to try to figure out how to write about being Mennonite. And it's something that's taken me a lot of years. You know, how do you get into that topic in a way that's not predictable, in a way that we haven't already seen, in a way that's also interesting? Um, that's been a really big challenge of my own creative life. 
So I know, um, Jessica, you've come at your music writing and criticism from a feminist perspective um, and have worked to legitimize how girls experience and talk about and value music. And Alyssa, you also write about women and their lives and this idea of monstrosity and kind of combine all of that in really provocative ways. Um, so I was hoping you could both talk a bit about starting off as a writer and finding your way into these areas of inquiry and any particularly formative or didactic missteps that you might have made early on that really kind of helped you to find your way into how you wanted, um, you know, to be to write feminist criticism or to write about women's lives. Um, I'm I I was a Montessori kid until about eighth grade, and so um, the you know, my approach to writing was like, I'm just going to do it and I'll figure it out. And, uh, I started, I started a fanzine when I was in, uh, when I was 15. Does everyone know what a fanzine is? Okay. You know, I, I don't know. I don't know. It's like a paper magazine. You make it at Kinko's. Does Kinko's still exist? Okay. So, um, and you know, it was like 40 pages of my own, musings and you know accumulating <laughs> bullshit from my other ninth grade friends and um and for me I mean I really started doing it kind of uh it was it was I didn't quite know about Riot Girl yet um but it was is very much sort of that impetus of um valuing my own voice and so um and it was also another way to connect with other young women like myself or young people like myself and you know male fanzines around and stuff and um I really I mean when I look back at that time it's not so much like um where I see mistakes. I mean, I just started so earnestly so early. And when I was putting my book together, um, I, I, I pretty much read everything I ever wrote, which, you know, fortunately half of it was moldering in my garage where I could just go flip through it. Um, and it made me very, very grateful that there was like no internet when I was in, I mean, there was, but I think it was like, um, it was not accessible to me. It was not a way to publish yet. And I'm really glad that, like, you know, these kind of sad attempts or, like, you know, whatever, wh what we call, now call wokeness that was lacking from my, um, from my uh, you know, high school feminism is not, like, broadcast and Google searchable and, you know, stuff like that. But um, I don't know. I, I think I've, I've – it, it was really, really hard to read some stuff or, like, how how – bad I was at writing and how often I was still finding publication in high school. Um, Lord help me. But, um, you know, I, 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 I was reading, I was reading through all of it and it was like stopping me when I was putting together my book, you know, and it's not because I was fragile. It's because it was so much worse than I thought, honestly. And my mom just kept telling my mom who's, you know, editor for living the last whatever four decades and uh she was like think of your teenage self as like one of your rookie writers and like just treat it with that that gentility like stop beating yourself up about this because you're never going to get your book done if you're sitting there going like oh like just cringing I mean I mean I, I know that's just like high school for you but it's like I have hundreds of pages of published writing from you know before I even graduated you know high school and it's just like oh god it's just it's just sad um but you know I mean I guess the the lesson from that mistake is 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 a kind of just learning to be gentle with myself that it's like it doesn't always have to be like a hammer and tongs process yeah I I don't know I'm still learning that like um yeah, I'm still failing. Yeah, a lot with that and learning that. Um, I mean, I think too, like I initially was writing, I remember like the first writing workshop I took, which was a poetry workshop, like an undergrad. I was writing these like poems, like from the point of view of like, like male, like soldiers, like in Vietnam, 
you know? <laughs> That's intense. <laughs> right? Like, like, why is that where I started, right? But I mean, I, I think I was like, you know, yeah, like, this is, ser you know, like, like, writing is serious, you know, I have to be really serious, right? War, right? Like, war counts, um, <laughs> like, as serious. And I, and I mean, I, I think, like, it was just kind of like this whole, you know, like, like sort of circling that that you do, where, I mean, I always saw kind of, like, literature and writing and, and good fiction, right, as, as stuff that was, like, about, about things that kind of had, had nothing to do with my experience at all, you know, or, or sort of very, very little to do with my experience. Um, and I mean, you know, so, so that was kind of like the, um, you know, the, the slow shift that began to happen, you know. Um, and then I think, too, you know, and I mean, this is something like with teaching that I really try to do with my students, you know, um, I mean, like, you have to find your books, you know, like you have to find the books that speak to you, you know, and um, I mean, I really didn't, you know, and until I was kind of, you know, two to three years within my MFA, you know, I was still kind of looking to like capital L, like, you know, literature and the canon and, and really trying to, you know, to sort of like replicate or copy, you know, what in my mind, um, you know, and, and really like so much of it was just like self-imposed, you know, like I was the one who was deciding, you know, that like this is what writing is, you know, and, and, and sort of like this is what's good and this is the best, um, you know, and, and just sort of like realizing, you know, that um, that limitation I was putting on it. I mean, I think it's interesting, too, that my big failure was from a male point of view and I felt the need to to do that, to write a successful story or something I thought was successful. Um, who are the voices and the books that really helped to shape your writing and your perspective? Who are the people you turn to? If you have to curate your list of your voices. Um, well, I mean, just just you know, within my my MFA um, at the time, uh, like Amy Bender, you know, was really huge. Um, but that that was just something you know to to come into and to realize, you know, that um, that stories can have these absurdist elements and still be about very very sad, tragic, serious things. You know, was um, was a thing for me. You know, I had never really read read things that broke from realism, you know, in, in, in sort of like quite as unapologetic, I guess, a way. So that was, that was really transformative. I didn't go to college. So, um, I really, you know, my, my coursework in learning how to write was, um, people recommending books to me and, um, you know, really, again, in a sort of Montessori fashion, pursuing what most interested me and following that interest and, and trusting that would um, lead me to what I, what I needed. Um, and really the, the thing that was fairly transformative to, for me was uh, Joan Didion's The White Album, which I just reread last week. And it's like, never, dude, when, when she's like basically roasting Nancy Reagan, it's so excellent. Um, I really, for me, it was about, I mean, so much of my early writing, my early criticism was really reacting to, um, you know, the music scene that I was part of and that the music journalism that I read. I grew up in Minneapolis, which was a town that was very, very rich in music criticism from the weekly to like numerous independent publications when I was growing up and fanzines. And that I was, so much of my writing was about making the thing that I wanted to read. Um, for a very long time, uh, with the exception of maybe one or two uh, books, there was a rock she wrote. My mom brought home a galley of rock she wrote, which is still like basically the only, <laughs> still 20 years later, the only anthology of um, women's music writing, that sort of, you know, historic arc. And th that book was incredibly powerful for me to read in 10th grade because I had an idea that, I mean, I was already obviously writing about music, but... Um, it, it sort of, um, it, it almost presented kind of like a distorted version of what history really was. I was like, oh my God, look, all these women writing about music. And I'm thinking, you know, because the, um, because the rock critic in town at the local weekly was a woman, I just thought, you know, this is, this is pre-internet. I thought every town must have one. 
it turns out she was the only one. And so, uh, you know, there was Gina Arnold, San Francisco, and that was and then like a few years later, Ann Powers at the New York Times. But, you know, I mean, three. So um, and I just thought like, oh, this is like a whole thing I can just jump in and be part of. And so um, the, the sort of distorting power of that, of the existence of that book really um, forced me forward. Um, so, Jessica, you're the editorial director at MTV, and Alyssa, you also teach in addition to writing. Um, so reading a lot of early attempts by students or bringing an editorial eye to others' work, how does this influence your own work or creative process, if at all? Uh, it sort of destroys it. <laughs> I can't... <laughs> Um, Teaching's great for writing. What are you talking about? I I um I hadn't written anything in 18 months, which is the longest I've ever gone in my entire life without writing on a very regular basis for publication, uh, for a thing that I'm performing next week on the pop-up tour, and um, uh, I can't edit and write at, at the same time. I can't be in my head and be in the heads of the nine people that are on our MTV News Music staff um at the same time it's it's weird it's like it's so it's so tough sometimes you know now for me if i get an idea and go you know typically i'll be like oh if i get an idea about something i'll say oh i should assign this to hazel sills you know rather than keep it in my brain and let it marinate i mean the other thing too is that it's like i mean i just mentioned this but like i i literally read everything i'd ever written that i still had a copy of like three whatever, three years ago. Um, and then I got to, you know, publish a book of, that was sort of like the, hopefully the best parts of it. And I was like, okay, I've explored a lot of my big ideas to like their absolute fullest. I need to get another big idea. So I feel like I'm kind of in, in the fallowness of it. But when I am in that sort of place of like, you know, really being involved on a daily basis with um, helping other writers articulate their truth, mine is like, out in the yard somewhere, like it was gone. Alyssa, what about you? Yeah, I mean, w one thing I do really like, I, I just feel like too, I mean, especially with, with kind of like first drafts and student stories, there's, it, it's like this like form of triage you know, and, and, and sort of like in, in, in this very, you know, kind of like almost almost spiritual way, you know, I mean, I, I feel like I'm like called upon to show the hope, you know, and like the path and the light, right? You know, so it's just like looking, you know, at every single, you know, one of these stories, you know, and, and, and sort of like finding, right, like, like just like the ember to blow on, right, you know, um, that it, it, it takes a lot of energy, like in a way, though, I mean, it is sort of like this daily you know, romantic interaction, right? Like with the process of narrative and story, right? I mean, it does like keep that, you know, in, in my life in a daily way, you know, where, where you list off all the things that like they won't actually take your advice and do in revision, right? But if they did take your advice, like might actually be like a sort of okay story, right? But I mean, sort of like, but you have that moment, right? You're like, you know, and we could do all of these things and it wouldn't be awful, right? You know what I mean? Like there's there's just kind of like this this hallowed moment, you know, and, and I kind of, yeah, remember, you know, sort of like in each of those moments, just like the excitement, right? Of, of like a good story. And like for those, you know, like, you know, 10 or 15 minutes, right, that we're, like, talking about in office hours, like, I am right, like, I'm nowhere else, you know, and, like, all of my problems don't exist, um, it, you know, I mean, it, it's really, it's really kind of transportative, so that's, that's, that's not a small thing, I think, in my life. I mean, it almost, sometimes for me, teaching and editing have both had the effect of, they're almost like a stand-in for me doing my own writing because I do I do really like them to a certain degree and I do get kind of inspired by them then not that I really have time then to go and write but um, I've had a lot of inspirational moments in the classroom I've had a lot of really uninspirational moments in the classroom too um, so you both have kids how has being a parent affected your creative process or your writing I don't mean to ask like a series of bummer questions here, but I'm just curious. So the, the funny, funny thing happened. Uh, so when I, I, 
when I got pregnant with my older son, so he's six, at the time I was, I had sort of, um, I knew I had wanted kids and so for like a few years I had, and I, and I knew that I still wanted to keep writing and, and keep thriving in my creative and professional practice. And so I, I really worked for a few years to um, try to make it so that I could make a living uh, just working 20 hours a week and like getting my word rate up with a couple of people and like I really planned it out. Um, and that was also great because it left a lot of free time for like researching and just reading all the time. Reading, remember that? Um, and I thought, you know, I'll have kids and, and I'll just like continue to work part time. I mean, I, I was making uh, freelance being what it was and I was freelance for 19 years until, uh, I don't know. Why am I looking at my hands like there's a watch there? I got a job like three years ago for the first time ever. And um, the process of, of, you know, trying to, I just, th I just thought like being a mom, I'll just write part time. It'll be chill. And then maybe like, I'll just, maybe I'll just write books every once in a while. And instead what happened was after, you know, th things like making deadline six days after you have a baby for the first time and stuff like that will really teach you um about how unprepared you are in your life for all kinds of shit and um and I was like okay I need to ramp this the fuck up uh my husband was in grad school my husband fun fact used to drive the cam bus around here FYI and so, you know, I'm supporting a child, my husband in school, and um, and then pretty soon there's another baby, too. And I'm supporting all of us freelancing, which is really hard. Bless my editor at GQ and their fabulous word rate. Um, and I was like, I'm going to get a job, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write another book, and, like, I'm going to do this stuff because I have to take care of my family. And the opposite of my plan happened, which was that I didn't just sort of, like, peter off into, like, you know, a well-balanced motherhood with the occasional book, which is like, I went into like, I work 50 hours a week and I run a newsroom and I have a book and like, I'm on tour and I was gone 63 days last year. And like, it, 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 and it was really because of my writing and because of my book that things went like, I mean, I, I had to hustle. I had to take care of my family. And so maybe that balance is there. I don't, I don't even know what that looks like anymore. It seems like you were just like, I'm just going to make, like turn up the volume on everything and just go. Uh, that was kind of it. I mean, because I was like, what am I, I was taking every, I was taking, I was doing like, you know, cover stories and stuff that I was supposed to be doing at that point in my career. But I was also like recapping the voice for Rolling Stone two nights a week and like doing all manner of like journalistic shit work. I had three jobs, like whatever. Part of that was because I didn't, I didn't want to give up writing. You know, that was how I organized my mind. That's how I stayed sane. I wanted to show my sons what, what it looked like to have a mom that was pursuing what she loved, what she was passionate about, what she was succeeding at. Because I know what it was like to grow up in my mom's newsroom and walk around and be like, my mom is the boss of all these people. And, you know, my mom like missing dinner because there was some huge thing happened in the news and they had to like, you know, run off the second edition of the paper and stuff like that. And so it's like being able to see that has such a huge and dynamic impact on my life that I now see so much more clearly at 40, how important it was to see my mom do that. And so I, it's very important for me that my sons also see that. That's so fucking badass. Yeah. Thank you for saying all that. <laughs> <laughs> Alyssa? No, I, I mean, I, from, I, I feel like parenthood is just like napalm, right? On like the creative process. Like, I mean, and I'm angry at, I am like, I mean, I still have like palpable anger, you know, at, at the people um, who like told me it wasn't, you know, or, or acted otherwise or blog, you know, as, as if it is not. Um, I mean, like, fuck like those people. yeah, fuck those people. <laughs> there is like this direct seesaw, right? Where it's like, um, like the more, the more writing I get done, right? Um, like the lower, like the quality, you know, of like my daughter's childhood, you know, um, you know, and, and, and sort of, you know, just, just kind of like, like the amount, right, of, of kind of like time or, or attention, or, you know, and patience I have with, um, you know, with her and my stepkids. And 
I mean, I couldn't parent without Apple products, you know, like I don't, um, I don't understand how people ever did, you know, parent without iPads, you know, like, like that's like 40% of my game, you know, like as a mom. Um, and I mean, I, I think you're just kind of like always reconfiguring, you know, be, because like, like it was such an oh shit thing when suddenly she could walk because before if I had a deadline, I would just put her in the crib, you know, and be like all the best, you know, like, like, <laughs> you know, like, Godspeed to you, you know, like, I'll see you in an hour, right? And then suddenly she could get out, you know, and I'm like, shit, you know? And so then it was like, all right, well, here are like 700 marbles, right? You know, like, I need 10 minutes. Um, and, and I mean, it's a different thing. And, and, and I'm getting to where, too, I mean, I, I feel like it does sort of change, not only kind of like, you know, how, how, how you write and when you write, but like, also what you write. I mean, like, I'm just kind of like finding myself, you know, gearing toward, you know, these like much sort of like smaller scale, you know, things or, or writing in, in ways where you can do it, you know, like, like just a, a little bit at a time. Right. Um, but I mean, I feel like every age is a different challenge and every age means like a different thing for sort of like the demands they're going to put you know, on, on your time, et cetera. But I mean, I, I think it's so nice, you know, to, to sort of hear and be reminded because I think that that's true. I think that it's actually not great, um, you know, when when sort of, you know, kids feel like 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 what they're doing is, is kind of going to, to sort of comprise like the bulk of like the parents' victory. You know, I mean, I, I think it's great for kids, you know, to see to see parents who are actualized, you know, and doing something that um, that they that they're in love with and that's important to them. Um, but I mean, it, it's just like hugely guilt-inducing, right? And I, I don't think it's like anything you ever get over, right? It, it's just like constantly managing it. And there are certainly times I don't write, right? Because I'm like, I've been such a fucking awful mother, right? Like this week, um, I can't possibly, right? Like be be even worse, you know? And um, and spend this time writing, you know? And and then there are times that that you do, and then you know you're really guilty and. Yeah, like they're in, in bed with like, you know, seven Kit Kats, you know, because you're like, don't hate me, you know, um, see how great I am to you. Like there's chocolate, like therapy, like, you know, like you don't need that. There's chocolate. Um, so, so, I mean, so maybe we can talk. I mean, you mentioned that some of your projects now have maybe morphed and maybe even what you're interested in writing about has mm -hmm. morphed a little bit. I know. Mm -hmm. um, for me, I just feel like I'm in a very fallow phase right now, too. I have a two-and-a-half-year-old. But I just feel like whatever comes next is going to be, like, a militant, feminist, mm -hmm. like, badass mom book where moms are just, like, yeah. being totally batshit. I don't know. Um, it's coming. Wait for it. Anyway. I'd like to read that. <laughs> okay, great. Um, so I'm wondering, you know, what you are working on now or what you're kind of thinking about or what you know, what projects are kind of taking up your creative space? Maybe it's not even writing at this point. Maybe it's something else. Uh, you know, there's, um, I got this, I got this call from my agents uh, a few weeks ago where they're, they're now just trying like, the, like tricks basically. Um, and my agents called it and left me a message. They said, you know, the fall is a really great time to sell a book. And I was like, isn't it kind of like any time is a great time to sell a book? Is it? And I was like, I, I called another friend of mine. I was like, is there something about the fall that like, are th like I, I, you know, I was like buying it for a second. And there, um, I've I've been working diligently for our podcast listeners um, on, <laughs> on my book proposal um, for my next book, which is um, a book that is about ten songs from nineteen seventy five and sort of. Um, the th that was the year that we had basically uh, the start of women on the pop chart singing songs that they wrote about their own lives and before that it was really men writing for them but you know it's it's like every, it allows me to write about you know uh, Joni and LaBelle so that's basically why that book's going to exist the really great thing about history is it's basically standing still so it's it's I'm going to get to that book when I'm going to get to it I did like an in conversation thing with Carrie Brownstein a few months ago and I was like, 
you are you are busier than me. How the fuck did you get this book done? And she was like, oh, I got up at four every morning. And I just like, oh, yeah. Well, because she was like, when else was I going to write? I wasn't going to write it at the end of the day when I'm exhausted. It's like, I can't write past like 3 p.m. I can barely function past 3 p.m. And, you know, I mean, I tried it twice. I would like set an alarm for like 5 a.m. And I was like, I am doing this. I wrote for 45 minutes before my kids fucking woke up and came downstairs. They're like, why aren't you in bed? What you doing? What's on the computer? We heard you. Yeah. Somehow. And I was like, and I was like, we yeah. heard you typing. I got, I got like four sentences done. I found some very informative YouTubes for my future research, but it's like, I am, um, long story long, I'm toddling along at like a glacial pace on a book proposal. Sounds great. You'll see it in like five <laughs> years at this rate. No, but like I also too like I go into like these sort of like like capitalist zones, you know, where I'm like, okay, you know, like what I'm going to do is I'm going to write like a YA book, you know, and like like like, like I'll use my stepkids as like you know the test market, right, you know, and like I'll ask them what they're into about it, you know, and what's working and what's not, right, and like that way our time together can be productive, you know, both emotionally and for my career, right? I mean, like you just get in like these weird, you know, because you're trying, like you're really trying. To I fit was going to write in. feminist critiques of children's books that really pissed me off when I was reading them at bedtime. I'm like the giving tree first one fuck yeah. the giving tree it's so fucked up I have I have entertained I doing adult coloring books because someone's like oh there's a huge market for this like I bet I could finish that just draw some shit I'll make like a steely Dan coloring book with some fun facts do it do it I might I might I might straight up have to Etsy that stuff so can I share your Etsy with y'all with my yeah, okay, great. Like misbegotten uh, delaying projects. Yeah, ideas we thought about when we were with our kids. Yeah. All right. Sorry, I don't have a lot right now. No, it's now. okay. It's okay. I have, I have one last question, and then do you guys have some questions too? Anyone have some questions? I'm just going to take that as a yes, and no one said yes, but I have a wrap-up question. What would both of you tell writers who are listening to this podcast particularly female writers, perhaps, who are maybe feeling discouraged right now, who are feeling like their voices aren't important or aren't being heard, who are feeling like they're failing in some way as a writer or a thinker, what kind of words of encouragement might you have for them? I will, I will say to them what I always say when people say, what is your advice for writers? What I have, what I have lived by, what I've understood, and what has served me probably the best in my career is that if you wait around for someone to give you permission or to invite you to do the thing that you want to do, you're going to be waiting your whole fucking life. So just do it and don't wait for that permission. And I know sometimes that's hard because we want that validation or we want publication or we want all that stuff. And for some people, because of who and how you are, those opportunities aren't as readily available, but you know, you, you're going to have to make them yourself. I think for younger writers growing up with the internet and with Twitter and all this, you know, instant feedback, basically, you just have to disengage from that and just write for yourself, write for your editor, write for the audience, write the stuff that you want to read. And, and that is, that's such a solid place that you can rely on and just really trust it. I mean, on that note, yeah, I, th I think, like, you have to save yourself first, you know, like, like put that before anything else, you know, like, like find the books, you know, that, that, that save you and read them, you know, and do the writing that, that saves you and make that, right, um, and, and let sort of, let, let audience and, and publication and all these things come, come after doing the work that, yeah, that's really going to save you. I feel like the takeaways from today are go to, send your kids to Montessori, <laughs> Don't have kids. They have llamas. <laughs> Don't have kids. Um, write for yourself and stalk people. Mm -hmm. Stalk people who inspire you. Stalk your kids. Make the most of your children's nap time. Yes, that too. So any questions um, from folks out there? Quick yep. test of the mic. Yep, we're working. Andrea has the mic. Just raise your hand. Just Don't go ahead and shy. raise your hand if you have a question. I'll go ahead and ask the first question. Um, this is our sixth podcast, and one of the things that sort of blows me away every time is how willing writers are to tell the truth. And there's a lot of other artistic industries where sort of the, the performance persona or the appearances are so important to keep up 
What is it about writing that allows people or that catharsis is such an important um, and part of the process, telling the truth? Maybe better off, why do you like? Why are you willing to come here today and tell us all the truth as part of Witching Hour and the Fail Safe? I resent people that make it look easy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? But, I, I mean, also, it's like, I, I, I don't want to say, like, how else are we going to learn? But, you know, I mean, there's so many, you know, every possible media, how it portrays writing and what it's supposed to be. And, you know, like, I just think about what I thought writing was supposed to be and feel like. And, you know, I reference it, like, in the opening thing in my book about, like, I thought I thought I was supposed to have, like, you know, ashtrays full of roaches and a special typewriter and be listening to jazz records, you know, like that I was like literally supposed to be like Grail Marcus in the 70s. I like to go and talk when I am invited because I I do not look and write like and exist like most of the other people in my field. I know that when I was um, a young punk back in the day, it was really important for me to see women on stage because, you know, I went to like punk and hardcore shows for a year before I saw a woman on stage. And I was like, and it was like an absolute light bulb. I was like, why do I just kind of feel like invisible and shitty here? And like, I like the feeling of this thing, but like, I'm not connecting. And then I just saw, you know, a woman holding a guitar and like, you know, screaming into a mic. And I was like, oh, me too. And so I, I go where I am asked because that's sort of like, you know, me evangelizing is just like, you too, you know? Yeah, and I mean, I, I think, you know, just sort of like by nature, kind of writers are, are very confessional, right? I mean, if I wasn't like irreparably broken with a tendency to overshare, I'd be like an orthodontist, you know, or something. <laughs> like I wouldn't be... A writer. I mean, I, I think, you know, all of like tension and conflict and suspense, you know, particularly in fiction is based upon secrecy, right? You know, revelation and kind of what, what you want to come out and what you don't want to come out. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I just think, yeah, by nature too, right? Like, like writers want to tell it. Questions from the audience. I know we have a lot of writers here, so ask, ask your burning questions. I'm, I'm not a writer, but... I'm creative, but I my I work for myself. I work alone, and it sounds like writing sounds a lot like that. Other than the relationship with your editor, is there something that you do to kind of break out of that, or just not be alone with your own thoughts anymore? Like, I mean, two-year-olds maybe aren't the best to bounce ideas off of always, <laughs> but you know, like, do you have a social group or like people you meet with, or what, what's your support structure like? I guess for collaboration and for kind of breaking out of like that mental funk. Uh, I, I'd like to be by myself. <laughs> uh, um, you know, I mean, I, I worked at home and I worked by myself all day, every day from 19 until 38. I am sort of, you know, the accidental hobbit. One thing that I did find that was very, very useful uh, for me when I was uh, putting this book together was this real arduous process, real, really just shaved any ego that I had off. And so I needed to really find other, you know, it wasn't even necessarily like someone to talk to like an editor. I was in a Facebook group with um, a bunch of the women that I worked with at Rookie, a bunch of young women, and we were all working on big projects and everyone really shared really openly about their process. And it was like having basically like on-demand cheerleaders where you're like, I just got this like horrible draft back and like, you know, or just whatever be like, I, you know, I hate myself. I hate this. I hate other people, whatever, whatever I needed or just being like, why am I pursuing this in these moments of just like total in the trenches of it that I could just like, you know, and then you just get that little Facebook notification. We would just show up for each other. And for a whole year that we really kind of did this in a very concentrated way to constantly raise each other up and support each other on all the big projects because a bunch of us had like books and you know things that we were trying to finish that were really major projects for us and and um, and having that was absolutely instrumental. Yeah, and I, I mean I'm I'm kind of starting to learn you know like like at 35 like how important and healthy. Right. That is you do like in some senses half, you know, have to sort of 
get to that mental right funk and stay there right um and it it isn't conducive you know to sort of like maintaining relationships right um or or like cultivating right like your your life and in socially satisfying ways um or like not abusing substances you know like um <laughs> it's it's like you're you know like you're you're drinking in your basement you know after you worked all day um cuz like you blew off all your friends the past two months while you're writing your fucking novel, you know? Like, I mean, it's... So, I mean, like, that's, that's kind of something that I'm trying to get, get, get more, right, of a handle on. Also, you know, I mean, th like, like, the one good thing about... I mean, I, I feel like parenting does, like, in a lot of essential ways, like, help me fly right. Like, like, bare bones, right? Like, I mean, very, like, basic, you know, stuff. But it's like, I'm like, oh, like, I need to, you know, like, like show some kind... Like, you become aware of yourself as a model, right, for, like, another human being, which is terrifying, right? Like, particularly, like, when, when yeah, your model is so awful. Um, yeah, so, I, I, like, that's something I think a lot about, you know, is, is sort of, like, how to find how to find support in healthy ways, you know, for this sort of, like, very kind of, like, isolating form of art that often, like, thrives on your self-destructive tendencies, right? I mean, like, like so often, um, yeah, it's like, it's like, w when am I going to write, like, the best? Oh, if I sort of, like, forego sleep, right, for a few hours, you know, and, 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 and stay up really late, you know, or, or you know, if, if, if yeah, if I isolate and don't talk to anyone, right, for several hours, um, you know, it, it's sort of, yeah, finding that balance is really difficult. I think we have time for one more question. More back there. There's that really famous Bukowski poem that's like, uh, if it doesn't come bursting out of you in spite of everything, like don't do it. If you have to sit at your typewriter for like hours, don't do it. And I found it when I was like 15 and was like, yeah, this that's so true. Like, <laughs> awesome. And then a couple of years later, I looked at it again and was like, actually, that's that's bullshit. Like, that's not how it is. Um, and I hate that poem now. Uh, and I was wondering, uh, you've talked a lot about sort of writing advice that has worked for you. Um, and I wonder if you've ever, if you've heard any that you like tried for a while and actually found to be kind of bullshit or like things that just actually did not work uh, that you thought might. It's not so much, uh, for me, advice uh, per se that didn't work. I've, I was just struck with this very visceral memory of, um, I was like, at the, geez, maybe about 12 years into my career maybe a little bit more, and um, some random editor who was sort of at the periphery of one of the publications I was at was like, you know, can we go get dinner? I was like, okay, sure. And he decided he was gonna sort of like give me writing advice. And really, you know, just like, with barely asking any questions, just starts sort of telling me about process and what he thought would help me in all this shit. And I was like, um, it, I mean, it was like hard to keep my eyes from like rolling all the way back into my neck. And I was just like, just suffering through this and was like, someone who's writing, I hate it. And so I was, that's always been a thing for me. Like I'm, I only ask for advice or help or whatever from editors that I trust and people whose writing I trust and whose worldview I fucking trust. And, and at the end of this, at the, whatever, at the end of this dinner, it was like, um, got a fortune cookie and it's like, you will receive a bunch of unwelcome advice. <laughs> and, and I kept it and like pinned it to my bedroom door and had it forever. But really it's like, you know what? Like I don't, I, I, I think particularly if you are um, a young person, young woman in particular, you will get constant unsolicited advice about your drafts, about your ideas, about all this stuff. And it's totally okay to reject the vast majority of it, um, I think, especially if it's from people that you don't, you don't trust how they see the world. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think like process, it's like, it's like toothbrushes, you know, where like everybody has their own and you should not share, you know? I mean, like, I think that, I think that what works, right? Like, well, for one person, I mean, 
you know, like like your life is just so much different, you know, than than anybody else's. Because like it just especially as I just remember, you know, I mean, like there were so many times, you know, especially as a student, you know, we're just like with such earnesty, right? I would like try to become, you know, like a, a devotee of, you know, like this like methodology, you know, that that some writer I admired, you know, had laid out, and it's just like not their life. And like I don't even do yoga. I don't do it, right? Um, like it makes me mad, you know. I, I don't know why. Um, it feels like I'm being punished. Um, sorry, how do you get that out? Um, yeah. So, so I mean, I, I think you you also like you know what works for you, you know, or, or like you you discover it, right? Like it's something that you have to discover through failure. What works for you, um, and that that other it's interesting. I love hearing about what works for other writers and and trying it, right? Um, but but only as a way of of seeing what I should and shouldn't incorporate because it works for me. So if you all have thought that Jessica and Alyssa are badass and brilliant, one great way to show that would be to go downstairs and buy their badass and brilliant books available at Prairie Lights. Um, another way would be to listen to this podcast, go um, get on the failsafe mailing list. We'll let you know when it's out. It'll be out in early 2017. Go see more stuff at witching hour today is an amazing day there's so much good shit i wanted to like not come to this and go to two <laughs> other things um but thank you all so much for coming out and a huge thanks to jessica and Alyssa. this was brilliant thanks, thanks so much and there you have it folks jessica and Alyssa are so cool please go buy their books Alyssa has a new one out right now called Made for Love, and Jessica's is the first collection of criticism by a living female rock critic. And just keep supporting women writers by reading them and buying them and or buying their books, I guess, and talking about how fucking awesome they are. If you'd like to take a look at the John Cage Rules for Artists that we talked about early in this episode, please visit our website, thefailsavepodcast.com. We'll have it there for you. And please subscribe to us on iTunes or SoundCloud. We have more great episodes coming up this fall, including Kelly Link, Kristen Radke, Carmen Machado, and Lauren Haldeman. This episode was edited and produced by yours truly, with event production by Andrea Wilson. As ever, The Failsafe is a joint effort of Draft, the Journal of Process, and the Iowa Writers' House. I'm Rachel Yoder. Thanks for listening. <laughs>